and the judge, I'll never forget, walking into the courtroom that day, and the judge says, uh, United States of America versus Mike Rouse. And I thought, my God, what have I done that the whole country is against me? Uh, And it really hit me upside the head. Uh, But I pled guilty because it was the truth. Uh, I did have a cocaine problem. And so I pled guilty and was given a five-year prison sentence. Uh, and was sent to El Reno, Oklahoma, federal prison, uh, where I ended up serving for 14 months. And it was during that time that, uh, I mean, within 24 hours, I realized this is not how I want to live my life. This is not where I want to be. I don't want to be a repeat criminal. I don't want to be looking through bars the rest of my life. So I've got to do something during this time to change my life and get back on track. This is episode number 153 with Mike Rouse. You're listening to American Snippets, the all-American podcast for those looking to dream bigger, live better, and make an impact. What is going on, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of American Snippets. Thank you so much for tuning in today. We have another awesome show, another incredible guest with a crazy story. His name is Mike Rouse. Uh, but before we get into the interview with Mike, just kind of just want to remind you all, especially if you're new, what this podcast is all about. Uh, first and foremost, this is a patriotic, entrepreneurial, mindset-driven interview show uh, that focuses in on positivity, possibility, and patriotism. Uh, we're big supporters and uh, of the American dream. Uh, we are relentlessly patriotic. We are avid supporters of our police and first responders, our military, our veterans, and their families. And we believe, frankly, that we live in the greatest country on earth because of the freedoms and opportunities and civil liberties that we all have here. Uh, and contrary to what we see in the media and uh, in current events with coronavirus, I mean, it is an election year too. Uh, our core values as a nation are still strong. America is still good. Uh, we, the people, are still good. And it's going to stay that way. And as long as we are all committed to uh, self, family, community, and country, um, we will come out stronger in the end and be an even better nation. And that's what those are the kind of things that we talk about here on the podcast. Those are the kind of guests that we have on the show. Uh, again, self, family, community, country, the American dream. Uh, all of our guests prove uh, that the American spirit is alive and well, that the American dream is still possible. And we want their stories to uh, inspire you and propel you forward in your own life. So with that being said, uh, let's get on to this week's guest, Mike Rouse. Mike is an accomplished endurance athlete with hundreds of high-profile races and several world championships to his name. He has trained and competed alongside some of this country's most elite athletes in Ironmans, ultramarathons, and 24-hour runs to raise money for families of the fallen. He has also spent 14 months in a United States prison. He's been locked up in a Turkish prison as well, and he's built and ran a nonprofit to support former inmates, and he smuggled Bibles into Iraq. Uh, Today, he is in his 60s, and he's still running circles around people half his age. He is committed to using his life to serve others. And this episode of American Snippets, he opens up about the difficult turns his life took, his own accountability for those turns, and how he found the biggest blessings by giving back. So without further ado, here is Barbara Allen with Mike Rouse. You're listening to the American Snippets Podcast. 
Hey there, welcome back to another episode of American Snippets. I'm your co-host, Barb Allen, and today I have the very great pleasure of sitting down to speak with Mike Rouse. And I talk a lot about the power of proximity and building good relationships and networks, and I never would have got to sit down and talk to Mike Rouse if it hadn't been for somebody we have in common who... I built, you know, I got to meet along my own path and taking chances and all that. It just goes to show the power power of networking and reaching out because incredible people like Mike Rouse come into your life through those channels. And when you hear his story, you are going to understand why I say that. Mike is an endurance athlete who runs everything. He runs everything. He runs marathons, 50 miles, 100 miles, Ironmans, double Ironmans, championships, and he wins many of the races he 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 runs in many of the competitions he runs and we're going to get into those numbers later because I don't even want to say it it's just too crazy he has we're going to talk about how he has snuck into Iraq I don't even know how that's possible for somebody uh, not on a on a military operation maybe that's what it was we'll get into all these stories but he has a, a past that he struggled to overcome challenges he faced that would have sank anybody a lot of people down He's learned how to overcome that, take, put a positive spin on negative events in his life. He's got lessons for all of us. And now he works hard to give back to families, to all sorts of charities that he has a strong passion for supporting and believing. His story is one of courage, tenacity, grit, humility, faith, all of those things rolled into one and shows the true spirit beating under the hearts of people all across this country that you would never imagine. Mike, we are so happy to have the opportunity to sit down and, and speak with you today. Thanks for joining us. It's my pleasure and honor. Yeah, so let's get into it. Let's start first with where you are now. Some of your, some of your, but we would be here for a week if we went through all of your running and, and athletic <laughs> accomplishments, right? But let's start about where you are now, the, the, the competitions you've been in, how much you run, and who you give back to. Then we'll go into your businesses, which you have as well. And then we'll go, we'll, We'll travel backwards to, to fill in okay. that story. Uh, well, it's, it's almost hard to talk about my running and how crazy I am uh, without knowing how I got into running because that's what created this monster. Right, right. Uh, but I'll, I'll wait. Um, but I, I, uh, I've, done, I've been doing ultra events since 1988. I did my first uh, marathon in 1987, my first 50 miler in 88 and my first 100-mile race in, in 1990. So I've been doing this for 30-plus years, um, and I've uh, had a lot of accomplishments, uh, very fortunate. I've run 261 marathons, uh, and I'm, I'm waiting for number 262 because you just, you know, you take the decimal out, 262 times 62, 26.2. Kind of got a unique... Uh, feel to it. Yes. And most of the things that I do, I kind of do that way. You know, I'm kind of quirky. Yes. Uh, uh, and so I'm, I'm waiting to figure out which one is going to be number 262. But uh, that's a lot of marathons. Um, I've done 34 50 kilometer races, 31 mile races. Um, I've won a couple of them. I've done uh, 78. You won a couple of them. Yeah. But you say that like so cavalierly well <laughs> uh and then i've done 78 50 mile races uh and 40 either 24 hour or 100 mile runs um and then i've done numerous iron mans and six times i've done the ultraman world championships in kona hawaii 
And Which I'm you've three, won three times. I'm a three-time age group world champion. Now let's stop for a second. Because before we recorded, you explained to me what the Ultraman is. Let's let's just break that down here and explain that for our our listeners. Yeah, well, an Ironman is a 2.4-mile swim, a 112-mile bike, and a marathon. Ultraman is a 6.2-mile swim, so it's two and a half times longer. The bike is 271, so it's two and a half times longer. And then the re- the run is 52.4 miles so it's a double marathon so it's not quite two and a half times completely but uh at least a double double iron man how did how long does that take uh it takes me about 30 hours 30 hours straight no it's actually broken up over a couple of days but still yeah because they don't want you riding at at night you know um because it's not a shutdown course either the road is wide open it's not like your typical iron man okay uh, where the roads are all shut down and you're kind of freewheeling, you know, uh, you're literally running on roads that there's still traffic. And so they can't, you know, they can't do it at midnight and one in the morning. Yeah. I mean, what could possibly go wrong there? Yeah. Right. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the fact that you've been out there riding a bike and you're, it's, you're an hour 20 and you're not tired at all. So no, 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 no. not at all. Um, okay, so we'll we'll circle back to all that later as well. And the the running and the athletic competitions you do, you have raised over two and a half million dollars to date. Helped raise over two and a half million dollars to date for the Navy SEAL Foundation. Yes, correct. Yes, ma'am. And can you tell us why that why that? And I know you you raise money for other organizations as well too. And I want to talk about all of them and give people a chance to connect and, and learn more about those organizations. What is it about the Navy SEAL Foundation for you? Well, I, I, I know you as, as someone who's on a podcast or if you're speaking, you're supposed to never apologize uh, first. But I will apologize and say that I'm a very emotional guy. Yeah. I wear my heart on my sleeve. And so I, there may be times when I get emotional uh, during our conversation. But part of it is because uh, the passion and the love that I have for our military, uh, those men and women and their families. Uh, mostly surviving families that have literally sacrificed everything to honor our country and to give us the freedom and uh, everything that we uh, hold dearly to us in America. Uh, Most of us can't even comprehend and relate to that. Um, You know, if you're a businessman and you have to file bankruptcy or, or go through something very difficult, you know, it changes your life. But when you lose a spouse, a husband, a a wife, a sister, a brother, uh, whatever the situation and relationship may be, it changes you forever uh, and nothing will ever be the same. And so when I think of the sacrifices of our military, it just, it inspires me to to give back and to go on. And so uh, several years ago, after I'd kind of gotten out of the um, physical ability to win races, uh, which was fine. I didn't care. But once you get into your 50s and you can't really win anymore, you can't compete against a 25, 30 year old man. Um, I realized that I could still use my athletic ability to give back. And so the one thing that I wanted to give back to were those surviving families uh, who had witnessed and experienced the ultimate sacrifice uh, of that loved one. And so um, I started doing all my runs, all my ultras with fundraising in mind. Uh, I don't really enter races anymore, uh, but I still do race type distances and events. Yeah. And there was, 
So uh, extortion 17. Correct. Yeah. You, you knew that's kind of what really started yeah. it for me. Yeah. And so I know um, I have met one of the widows, uh, you know, from that plane crash in the circle in the events with Roy Baldwin, you know, we'll get into all that because I'm, sure. I'm also a gold star wife and that's how I met them. Um, and so I know of that story, but for not story, I know of that loss, but for people who don't, maybe you want to, and this is the number 31 that ties into so much that you do. All right. Um, so that's, can that's you, my can number you, right now. That is your number. Right? It has so, been for several years now. I mean, you have just recently concluded running 31 miles a day, every day for 31 days to, to commemorate Honor 31 heroes. Honor 31 heroes. So can you get into that for a minute? Sure. Um, <clears throat> Well, to really get into it, I have to go back to 2002. I'll just okay. tell you the whole story. Yeah. Uh, in 2002, I was living in San Diego, working in the running business for Mizuno, and I was a territory manager for them. And I had a running group that met every Saturday morning at Ski Beach, and we did workouts. And, you know, it was all the top elite uh, runners in San Diego, the top 10 to 15 women, the top 10 to 15 men. And we met there at eight o'clock on Saturday mornings. And these are all guys that had, gals that have been running for most of their lives and were very, um, I, I guess you'd say, uh, enthusiastic and geared towards winning races, uh, placing high uh, in races at least. And so we met there, we worked out together for the competition of it. We had a coach that was a national class runner, Kevin McCary. And so it was, it was a good group of people, um, and, and we, we did it every Saturday morning for years and years. And so one morning, uh, I'll never forget it, in 2002, I, get, I come up, and again, this, this is your top 20 to 30 runners in San Diego. So the guys are mostly, you know, five, nine to six foot tall, 140, 150 pounds. The ladies are, you know, five, four, five, six, uh, 110, 115, 20 pounds, uh, very fit folks uh and as i came up that morning um there were two guys that were out kind of jogging around warming up and they were about six three six four weighed about 230 220 and all tatted up uh and i just like you know a couple guys out running at ski beach you know no big deal uh and then when a coach called us together to give us the workout these two big guys come jogging over and they're standing around just listening you know and uh he kind of told us what to do to kind of get started in the workout and these guys took off well i walked over to him i said kevin who who are those two big guys that are that are running with us so they don't look like runners to me and he's like well i don't really know them they just came up and said they'd been uh, told about this running group and wanted to train and they're navy seals and i said all right that's fine and i'm thinking okay they're you know they're probably fit and strong and tough as nails but you know this is a runner's group you know, this isn't, you know, carrying a rifle, carrying a AK-47, you know, hiding out and ambushing people. <laughs> this is guys that, are, you know, just, just love to run. And so I didn't think they would really last. We'll make a long, long story short. Uh, after several weeks, they came back every Saturday and they were running. I mean, they weren't just out there slogging around. They were running with some of the elite runners in, in San Diego uh, who weighed 50 to 100 pounds less strong as they could be <clears throat> and so they invited me to breakfast uh, uh you know again after about six weeks and one of them's name was jt john tummelson uh, but everybody called him jt and so he came up he, he's sitting there at breakfast and he you know we're all we're talking about is running and this and that i never got into their seal business you know it's none of my not my situation 
And so he, he says, Hey, you know, you seem like a pretty cool guy. And I, I really like hanging out with you. And, you know, you, you've been very kind to us. You've never talked about, you know, what we do or what we've seen or done. And he said, uh, I need somebody like you out here. So I'm from a little town in Iowa, Rockford, Iowa, 800 people. Uh, my dad's a farmer and carpenter there. My mom's a stay home mom. So I don't get to see him very often because it's hard to get to, you know, I have to fly into another city, rent a car and drive two or three hours. And, you know, being in the military, I, I just get a couple of days here and there to, to go. And so it's very hard to see my family, but I need uh, somebody out here to kind of give me some advice. Occasionally, would you be my West coast dad? And I was obviously very honored. And I said, of course I would, I'd love to, you know, do whatever I can. And he says, well, I want to call you pops. He says, you're my West coast daddy pops. <laughs> And so that kind of stuck with me. And down through the years, uh, the next several years, he introduced me to all of his Navy SEAL buddies. Every time we had a Memorial Day or Labor Day or Fourth of July party or, you know, went, went and had a, a run on a Friday afternoon and went and got a beer afterwards, you know, we would hang out. And he would always introduce me to his Navy SEAL buddies. And uh, Marcus and Morgan Latrell were two of them that he introduced me to back in 2003. He told me for a long time, he says, Pops, you're going to, you need to meet my buddies, Marcus and Morgan. They're from Texas. Uh, they talk like you. They act like you. They got that same cocky accent. And he says, I really want you to meet them. And so he introduced them to me. We became close and numerous others. I could go on and on about the different people that he's introduced me to, but it just, it, it created a bond uh, with me and these young men uh, that, you know, I'd never seen anything quite like. Because again, I had I'd grown up in a well-to-do family, uh, country club lifestyle, and I, you know, I thought if I had a flat tire, I had a problem, you know. Uh, and if I if I was, you know, in a business situation and I lost a few thousand dollars, it was horrendous. I, you know, could I recover from it? And here, these guys are talking about how they just lost their best friend uh, in Iraq or, or Afghanistan or wherever the situation might have been, and you know, the loss of life was crazy. And then we had the situation with Marcus back with uh, June 28, 2005 with Operation Red Wing, yeah. when JT called me and told me that we had lost Marcus, not knowing that he had, you know, survived it. Uh, but, you know, it, that kind of just, I mean, really set me in motion to say, you know what, I thought I've had issues. These guys have gone through more than I will ever understand. And so that's when the, the mindset came to me that I really need to start to give back uh, to these men and to their families. And so uh, fast forward to August 6, 2011, uh, on a Saturday morning, I got a phone call from one of my friends in San Diego. I was on a trip and I found out that we had lost GT, that he was in a helicopter, uh, Extortion 17, that was shot down in Afghanistan and all 31 uh, soldiers on board were taken. Uh, lost their lives, and it it was crushing to me. Uh, he wasn't a son, but he he you know he treated me like a, a adopted stepdad, and vice versa. And uh, it, it it was very very difficult for me. And so I set in motion to do something to honor his life, and decided that on the anniversary, uh, August sixth, twenty twelve. Uh, a year later that I would run 24 hours to honor him. And in the process of that year, I met two other Navy SEAL wives. Uh, I won't say their names uh, because their husbands, one of them's right. husband is, is still uh, serving. 
but they came to me and or contacted me and said, we, we heard that you put on races, you're in the running business, and we want to put on a 5K race to honor the families, uh, men in, in the families of Extortion 17. So we put together what we call Jogging for Frogmen, uh, 5K run, uh, around the anniversary of, of Extortion 17 in 2012. And I ran for the 24 hours prior to it. I started at 8 o'clock on Friday morning and ran till 8 o'clock on Saturday morning. And I had shirts made, each one in honor of one soldier, one, one of those military men that had lost their lives. And so I would run a 3.1-mile loop, the 5K course that we were going to race. I would run that in honor of that one guy and change shirts from the next 3.1 miles in honor of the next and on and on until I'd run all 31 uh, laps of 3.1 miles uh, with the last one being for JT. Uh, and then we put on a 5K. We had about 1,000 people participate and raise several thousand dollars. Uh, it was completely underwritten by the, the Veterans United Foundation. And so every dime that was raised went directly to the Navy SEAL Foundation. And so we've continued that tradition. Now we have uh, this, this year is the ninth year of Jogging for Frogmen. We have nine races nationally, uh, other cities. Uh, uh, I'm involved with the one in Frisco here near where I live. Uh, but we have nine races nationally. And, and in that process of the last eight years, we've raised a little over $2.5 million to the, for the Navy SEAL Foundation. That is unbelievable how you all managed to do that. And uh, just, I think it's just a, a testament to what can happen when people get together and, and work together and, and do that. How are you doing that now virtually? Well, um, we actually are just getting ready next weekend uh, to do our, our first virtual race, uh, Jogging for Frogman in San Diego, the original race that we put on. Yeah. We Obviously, we had to canceled because of the situation with the pandemic and so we're doing a virtual race there um you still can get your t-shirt your bib uh, your finisher's medal and you just you know we we trust people that you know pay the fee uh to do it and then we will send them the shirt medal and bib uh as an honorum honorarium for them uh but, you know, again, all the proceeds will go to the Navy SEAL Foundation. It makes it more difficult. You don't get the same exposure. You don't have that personal presence, right. uh, you know, that you do of, of having a race. But, you know, at the same time, it's all we can do. Yeah. Are, are people recording themselves running or going live with it at all? So, a little, it's a little bit of everything. Some people yeah. will, you know, post pictures. Some will post a, a short video. Others will just, you know, record it on their watch or on their there's, you know, their garment or whatever, uh, and then take a picture of that and send it to us, you know, whatever again, but we trust them. It's not about, it's not necessarily about running the miles. It's the fact that they, they were aware of the situation and, right. you know, they, they took part in it. They participated. Right. So all of this, these events and these accomplishments that you're achieving through running is sort of, a major deviation from the path you started out on. And yeah. and before we started recording, you were sent, telling me that the first 33 years of your life were just plain vanilla. And you made an illusion, you know, you, you commented towards that fact here a minute ago when, you know, a flat tire was, was a bad thing and you grew up in, in a well-to-do situation. So let's backtrack a little bit and talk about those first 33 years. Okay. Uh, well, Bart, 
Barb, oh, I grew does. up in Abilene. Sorry about my dog. <laughs> That's okay. Uh, there's a leaf blower outside, and he, she gets <laughs> oh, we excited. can't have that. Yeah, go ahead. Um, I grew up in West Texas, Abilene, Texas, town of about 120,000 people. And my father was a custom home builder, very successful. Um, once I graduated from college, uh, he asked me to come in and be a partner with him. And so I did. And so for about nine or 10 years, we partnered together uh, with Rouse and Son Construction Company, uh, building custom homes, small commercial uh, buildings. And uh, again, we're very successful. Um, I was the president of the Abilene Home Builders, very involved in my church. I uh, was on city council there in Abilene and uh, had a pretty good lifestyle. Uh, member of the country club, played golf. Uh, my best friend had seven Learjets and we traveled all over the country playing in golf tournaments. So, you know, I thought, again, having a flat tire was a pretty major trauma uh, in my life. Um, and then uh, I went through some very difficult circumstances and got divorced. I uh, had two children. And when that happened, it, I lost focus of who I was and where I was and uh, where I was going. Uh, it just hit me pretty hard and I didn't know how to deal with it because again, my life had always been just so almost perfect that I didn't know how to deal with anything that was out of the ordinary. And so I, I got involved with uh, the wrong crowd, uh, not to blame anybody but myself, but got involved in drugs and alcohol very heavily, uh, got up to a thousand dollar a week cocaine habit. And uh, was told by several friends, you know, that they were worried about me. But you know, my my outlook was, hey, I'm I'm president of the Home Builders Association. Uh, I'm city council. I'm driving a Porsche. I'm flying around playing in golf tournaments in Learjets. How can my life be in trouble? Um, and so I, I continued on with this addiction for several years. And when I was 33. Uh, I won't get into details of it, but I was arrested and charged with conspiracy to possess cocaine uh, with intent to distribute because of the amount that was involved and was given a five-year sentence. Uh, and the judge, I'll never forget, walking into the courtroom that day, and the judge says, uh, United States of America versus Mike Rouse. <laughs> and I thought, my God, what have I done that the whole country is against me? Uh, and it really hit me upside the head. Uh, but I pled guilty because it was the truth. Uh, I did have a cocaine problem. And so I pled guilty and was given a five-year prison sentence uh, and was sent to Reno, Oklahoma, federal prison, uh, where I ended up serving for 14 months. And it was during that time that, uh, I mean, within 24 hours, I realized this is not how I want to live my life. This is not where I want to be. I don't want to be a repeat criminal. I don't want to be looking through bars the rest of my life. So I've got to do something during this time to change my life and get back on track. And so uh, one day when I was out on the yard, I, you know, I had my hour or so every day out on the yard. Uh, and I saw guys running around the exterior of the prison yard. You know, there was no track. Uh, there was no course. It was just men who ran against the fence uh, and then up, up close to the, the building, the penitentiary building, and just kind of made this big circle. And so I stopped one of the guys and said, hey, uh, what's the deal here? Uh, you know, how far are you guys going? He, and he's, he says, two and a half laps is a mile. And so I thought, well, you know, I've been an athlete. I played golf all my life. I've been involved in sports. You know, I, I run two miles. That's not a big deal. And that, that'll kind of give me something to go on, give me some health back and, you know, uh, something to do when I'm, you know, just hanging out here. 
And so uh, I got in, I started to do my laps around the track and I couldn't finish one without walking. Uh, I was so out of shape. I weighed 120 pounds. I was six foot tall, 120. Cocaine had done that to me, had just wrenched my body. And so uh, I did, uh, I ended up running and walking those five laps to get my two miles in. And it almost, I thought it was going to kill me. Uh, but I went to my cell, laid in that, my bunk that night and looked up at the ceiling and my legs started to hurt. But, you know, it was a good pain because it was something positive, something I had done that was good for me physically. Uh, and so during those next 14 months, I would spend all my time out on the yard running around that track, trying to build my endurance and, and get healthy. And when I walked out uh, 14 months later, I was doing about six to eight miles a day. And I uh, felt good about myself. It was something positive. Uh, and I vowed that, you know, I was going to keep running and, and see what I could do to, to make my life better. And without getting into too much detail, uh, <clears throat> I didn't think I could go back to Abilene and have a normal life because, again, everybody there knew me. Yeah. Uh, I felt like if I walked into a grocery store, people would be staring at me. Oh, there's the guy that just got out of prison. And so I packed my stuff, uh, got a borrowed car from my sister and her husband, and moved to Dallas and stayed on a couch. And uh, got a job in the running business, uh, and shortly thereafter starting a nonprofit uh, working with ex-convicts and their families. Uh, that was in 1987. And so the reason why I love the run so much is that it literally saved my life physically and emotionally. Um, and I feel like because of what it did for me that I owe it, owe running, if that's possible yeah. to, owe, to owe a sport something, but I really do feel that way. And so because of my passion for running, uh, and then what it gives me is kind of a, a leeway into raising money and to getting other people involved, getting other people healthy. Uh, I've coached over 5,000 people to run a marathon. Uh, numerous other people to run ultras and triathlons, uh, Ironmans. So it's given me a, an outlet to give back to people that way. Um, and now since the situation with Marcus and, and JT and other military friends that have lost their lives, it's given me an outlet to raise money to support those families. Wow. That is all a very incredible story. I'm going to go back. I wrote down, made some notes to, you know, to dig in a little more. Uh, on that, because I think it holds so many lessons for people listening. And I know because a lot of people reach out to contact me and tell me this in particular, plus I know from personal experience that it it is not uncommon for a person, people to get themselves into a situation in life where they feel like they are so far down, so low, so broken, and the odds against you ever rebuilding your life are just are just impossible. You know, you just get to a place where you feel like, well, now I've just made such a mess of it or all these terrible things have happened to me that there's no digging out from this. But your story is again, just more of a, of a living example that it is possible to dig out, not only dig out, but come back. It seems stronger and more impactful than you even were before this experience happened. And it's just a testament to, I think, to the human spirit and, and the will and, all the good things that can happen when you take that pain and you flip it and you turn it into a purpose, I think that's even bigger, bigger than you. So I want to ask, I'm sure there were some tough stumbling blocks along the way, but um, one question I have, you know, how did your, when you came out of prison or when you were 
convicted. I'm, I'm just imagining because I know what it's like when I went through my own trauma, when my husband was killed and I had all these things going on, um, that just reshifted my, my circle naturally. You know, people mm-hmm. didn't know how to deal with me, how to connect with me, how to relate with me. Other people I met did know how to deal with me and connect with me. So ev- everything shifts when something major shifts. So did that shift for you as well? Did your circle of friends and family experience any shifting? Did you have some people that just excuse themselves from your life and, and other people come in? Well, you, you know, Barbie, again, as, as I said earlier, when I came home from prison, when I paroled out, of course, I went straight back to Abilene for a couple of weeks because that's yeah. what you paroled to where you came from. Uh, I realized quickly, though, that that, that wasn't going to work for me, that I did have to change friends, that I did have to change uh, what I did and where I, where I lived. You had uh, to change the circle you were in because that's the one it, that led you into that. Exactly. Into that and you know, I, I recalled very quickly after I got home something that I had heard about six months into my incarceration. A guy came in who had spent, I don't remember now, 15 or 20 years in prison and, you know, thought he was a lifelong criminal, but got out and it changed his life. And now he was brought in to kind of mentor, I guess you could say, those that were still incarcerated and kind of give us some advice and, and guidelines. And as he, he started talking, he said, you know, as, as I begin this talk today, he says, I've got two things I want to share. One of them is good news. The other one's bad news. And he said, I'll, I'll share the good news first. The good news is that once you get out and 99% of people that go to prison are going to parole out. And he said, because you're here in this meeting today, you're, you're on a list to parole out at some point in your life. So you're going to go back out into society. And so I have one bit of good news that I want to share with you about that. He said, once you're out, all you have to do to get your life back on track is to change one thing. One thing. That's all you have to do is change one thing. And he said, the bad news is that one thing that you have to change is everything. He said, you can't just change friends and then do everything else the same. You can't just change jobs and do everything else the same. You literally have to change everything. And he went through a litany of things that we had to change. And it literally hit me upside the head because I thought, man, I've lived all my life in Abilene. I've had the same friends for 30 something years. I've been in the same business since I graduated college. It's all I've ever done. I mean, how, how do you do that? And I got home and within just days, I realized, you know what? That guy was pretty darn smart because he had it figured out and now I've got to figure it out. And so that's when I, I packed my stuff and left and started over. Um, and you know what? I, I, and I also took the attitude that I was in a place that I chose. Nobody put me there. I can't blame, you know, anybody but myself. But for 33 years of my life, everything was about my Krause. What car I could have, what house I could live in, how much money I could have in the bank, how many girlfriends I could have, whatever the thing was, it was all about me, 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 me. And during those 14 months of of self-reflection, I realized that that had put me in a penitentiary. One of the sorriest places on earth is a penitentiary. And in order for me to do something better, I had to give back and not anything be about me anymore. It was about other people. And so that began that process. Yeah. What is and that so, work that you did with the nonprofit? I'm sorry to 
So no, good. You're still talking. Um, no. <laughs> what, what is the work you did with the nonprofit and the one you created to help us? I think that is such a, probably such an underserved community of people who genuinely want to put their lives back together. And it, it, it definitely and, is. And, you know, one of the things that I, again, you know, college degree, loving family, right. successful career, politics, you know, whatever, all the things that I had in my life. And yet still, when I was released, I had this cloud hanging over my head that, Mike, you're still an ex-convict. You still, you'll always have a criminal record, et cetera, et cetera. So mentally, it was kind of, a, like I say, kind of a black cloud hanging over me. But I, I was able to look at other people who were in the same situation and think the typical guy that I was incarcerated with had an eighth, ninth, tenth grade education, not a college degree. They didn't have a loving family. They, they had a family that was tired of their antics, upset with them, mad at them because they had lied to them. They had stolen from them. They had abused them, wh whatever they had done. Uh, I've been in a church all my life. I understood the, the grace and forgiveness of being with people of like mind. These people were on people that hated them and they hated each other. Um, uh, They'd never had jobs. My resume was custom home builder, president of the Home Builders Association, city council. Their resume was a thief, uh, attempted murder, drug addict, drug dealer. Not a good resume. No. So how does that guy who's told, here's your, here's your $200 check, you're, we're paroling you out of prison, now go be perfect or you're coming back. And yet they've got no education, no job skills, no family love. They're scared to death of a church because churches are for perfect people, right? Yeah. And so they have all these negative connotations and, and, and yet they're expected to make it. And so I said, you know, I've got to do something to give back to these guys because I was, I'm so lucky in spite of myself because uh, I have all this positive stuff. And so I had this idea of starting an aftercare program. Uh, housing these guys, giving them job skills, teaching them how to get a job, reuniting them, reuniting them with their husbands or wives and their children, getting them counseling, you know, because even though that wife and children may love that guy, he's been gone for four years. She's been working three jobs and living with mm -hmm. mother and sister and aunts and, you know, kids don't even know who the guy is. So how do they make it? And so I, I developed a program called Exodus where we housed families for six months. Again, gave them job skills and, and got them on the right track and, and gave them a chance to survive uh, in this society. And I, I'm proud to say that now 33 years later, uh, the Exodus program that I helped start in 1987 is still going here in Dallas. Uh, I've been by there numerous times. Uh, I, I don't go by often because when I, when I walked away from it after 10 years, I said, you know what, I've done my part. I helped yeah. start it. I've raised the money for it. Uh, put the program together and, but I got to hand it off. It's almost like you take your child to school on, you know, yes. when they're in kindergarten Time and you hand fly. them off to a teacher, yes. you know, uh, and it's, it's their job for those few hours. And so, um, uh, I say I, I, it was an unbelievable thing. Uh, it's still going strong, and uh, I'm I'm proud to have had a part in that. So, wow, that is just what would you say to somebody right now then who comes to you and says, "Look, Mike, I know that you did all these great things with your life, and I know that you came out of this, but I can't run." 
I can't do this. I have all these reasons why I can't come back from the situation I'm in now. I don't even know where to start. Where would you tell somebody to start? What would you have any words of advice for somebody who says, I, I am in just this heap of despair and darkness and trouble and problems and challenges. I don't know how to begin. I don't know how to take that first step out. I think, I think the first thing is that, you know, you've got to f- take a deep, long look at inside yourself and, and just say, you know what, I'm better than this. And it's going to take baby steps. You know, you can't go from incarceration to making $50,000 a year, you know, in a job that you've never, you know, had experience in. Uh, and you've got a criminal record to show for your past, but you, you can take a baby step. And so that's why I was teaching folks in Exodus uh, is that, you know, identify what your passions are. Because if you have a passion for something, your, your odds of you really sticking with it and giving it 100% of yourself are much greater than if you're just, you know, I don't want a job, but, you know, the guy offered it to me and it's, you know, it's minimum wage and I want to take it. You know, find out what your passion is, what you can put your heart into. And so that's, uh, that's where, kind of going back to my own story. I was never a runner. I never ran a mile in my life till the penitentiary. But yet I gained a passion for it because of what it did for me. And so when I got out, I got a job in a running store as a greeter. I started out in 1980-something as a greeter in a running store. Wow. And worked my way up to salesman, to sales manager, store manager, to territory manager for a company, to national sales manager for two brands. And so, but, you know, I didn't start out in 1987 when I was released from prison being a national sales manager for a running brand, right. but I got a job in a running store and just ran my tail off every day because I loved it. Uh, and I could put my heart behind it and my head around it. And so that's the same thing, you know, whatever your passion is, if it's, you know, and I used to, I'll never forget some of the stories I used to tell folks when I would interview them and, uh, you know, or try to talk with them about getting a job interview. And I would say, you know, what is your passion? And, and you know, a guy would say, oh, I want to be a doctor. Well, okay, let's say you just got out of prison. You've got a 10th grade education, not even a GED. Odds of you being a doctor are pretty slim. But maybe if you go back and get your GED and you get a job working in a hospital as a janitor, or something, you know, you're around medicine, right. you're around that mentality, that, that, that passion that you have in your life, and then see how it works your way up. You know, if it's, uh, if it's car salesman, you know, start off working in the parts department, you know, you may not own a dealership, but, you know, start off in the parts department or start off doing whatever, working for a car uh, dealership and just see where it takes you. And so to me, living life to the full is about living your passion. And whatever that may be, you have to identify it. We're all different. You know, our fingerprints are all different. Uh, and we all have a different mentality. We've all had different walks of life. But find your passion and go with it. Absolutely. So before we get into the last segment of this interview, I have to ask you about a follow-up on the conversation that we had quickly before we recorded. Um, and that was about you sneaking into Iraq. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, like I said at the beginning, I've had a very interesting life. Uh, yes. I could have never scripted what I've been through. Uh, I went from being very vanilla to you know, very black, dark penitentiary, very, 
a deep hole uh, and got released back in, into the light and started Exodus. That was in 1987. Well, 1991, we all know what happened. We had the first Persian Gulf War. Uh, you know, President Bush, uh, Elder Bush, you know, attacked uh, Saddam Hussein after he had occupied Kuwait. And we went in and ran him out and decimated his army. And, you know, Saddam Hussein being a dictator, owning the country of Iraq and all the oil and everything in it, all the newspapers, TV, radio, realized that he needed to do something to, you know, uh, show his credibility with his people and his power. Even though his army was decimated, he still had enough that he could show some power. And he had the TV and the radio and the newspaper resources to show that. And that's all the people could see. They couldn't see outside radio. They couldn't see American CNN, which probably wasn't even existence then. But so he went up into northern Iraq. And there's a group of people called the Kurds. Uh, I didn't know much about them. I'd heard about them, but I knew nothing about them. Well, the Kurds is the largest known people group in the world that don't have a country. They've never owned their own country. And they're ostracized. Uh, they live in northern Iraq, eastern Syria, southern Turkey, and western Iran. There's a little, like a pocket of, of those four countries, uh, a lot of mountains, uh, and the Kurds kind of move themselves into those mountains and, and stayed away from the Turks and the Syrians and the Iranians and the Iraqis for safety sake. And they have their little villages. They speak their little language. They were never allowed to go to school in any of those countries. You can't speak the T Kurdish language, uh, especially in Turkey, Iran, and Iraq without going to prison. And so they just kind of live their little shepherd lifestyle up in the mountains, herding sheep and, uh, and goats and, and, and growing apples. And so I'll never forget in, in 1991, after we had annihilated Saddam and he went up into those mountain, uh, mountains and ran the Kurds even higher up into the mountains and decimated so many of them. Uh, it was all over CNN, how, how he was, you know, annihilating these people. So fast forward six months, I'm in a, a two-day seminar in Waco, Texas. It was a, uh, an event to teach nonprofits, my Exodus program, how to raise money, how to go out into the foundations and, you know, different clubs and organizations and raise money. So I'm going to all these different seminars. And so the, la the second day, the last speaker, uh, I'm, I'm kind of tired. I've been sitting in seminars eight hours a day for two straight days. I'm ready to come back to Dallas, get back to work. And I, I hear this guy introduced is Mafa Barzani, and, which meant nothing to me. And he walks up to the, the microphone and he starts speaking in this very heavy dialect, was very Middle Eastern dialect. And he said, my name is Mafa Barzani. I'm an Iraqi Kurd now living in Dallas, Texas. And I thought, oh, my gosh, this is a guy whose people have been annihilated by Saddam Hussein in Iraq. And here he is in, in Texas talking. And so it really kind of sparked my interest. And as he began to share the plight of his people who were being crucified and, and murdered for absolutely no reason, other than the fact that it showed that Saddam Hussein had power. They hadn't done anything wrong. Uh, and, and yet they were being uh, decimated by him. And so he, he talked about how 2,000 of these Iraqi Kurds had been taken out of a prison camp. Uh, they're in northern Iraq and had been brought to Dallas, Texas. 
And he was now working with them, trying to assimilate them into society. But it was very difficult because, again, these men and women were sheep herders, 10, 12, 14 kids, you know, big, big families. Both sets of uh, parents were there. So you got two sets of grandparents, a couple, and 12 or 14 kids. And they've been brought to an apartment complex, 2,000 of them, 53 families, to an apartment complex in Dallas that had been – uh, uh, foreclosed on, the government owned it. And so they'd moved these families into these three-bedroom apartments in this complex and had given them free rent and food stamps and said, good luck. Almost like that guy coming out of prison yeah. who said, here's your $200 check. You know, here's your walk-in papers. Here's your parole papers. Good luck out there in the, in the free world. And so these people were kind of in the same situation. We're giving you a place to live. We're giving you food stamps to feed your family. Good luck in America. And he said, but these folks have never been allowed to go to school by Saddam. They've, they, they're sheep herders. So what do you do in Dallas, Texas as a sheep herder? And I'm talking about in Midtown Dallas, yeah. LBJ Freeway and the 75 Freeway. I have been there. Yep. Yeah. Uh, no sheep within 100 miles. No, I didn't see that. <laughs> uh, they literally have the clothes that they had on when they were taken out of this camp. That's all they've got. So they're sleeping in these three-bedroom apartments, 12, 14, 15, 16 people, sleeping on the floor, no pots and pans, no beds, no couches, no nothing, no cars, no jobs. They're walking over to a grocery store, getting food with food stamps, coming back and eating raw food, vegetables, just whatever they can to survive. So Mafa's telling this story, and I'm like, oh, my gosh. These guys are like prisoners coming out of prison. And so I went up to him afterwards and I handed him my card and I said, you know, I don't know what I can do, but you've really, you know, tugged at my heartstrings and I want to do something to help. And I've got a nonprofit where I help people. You know, if I can help in any way, let me know. Fast forward 24 hours, I get a phone call from Mafa Barzani and he says, Mike Rouse, this is Mafa. And he goes into you know, more about the story. And he says, can you help me? You said you have a nonprofit and you help people with housing and jobs. Can you help my Kurdish friends? And I said, well, I don't know how I can help. I, I can maybe give you a couple of couches and three or four beds, but I mean, 2000 people in 53 apartments. I don't have that kind of resources. And he says, well, if you can, anything would help. That was on a Thursday. Barb, this is a crazy story. This is on a Thursday. Friday morning, less than 24 hours later, I get a call from a lady. I won't give her name, but she was the president of the Junior League of Dallas. Some of the most successful, prominent women in the city, right? And she says, hey, I know you have this program and you furnish apartments for ex-convicts. And we're having a, a Junior League garage sale this weekend. We've got a big warehouse in North Dallas. And everything that is not sold, all the proceeds go to the Scottish Rite Hospital for Children. Everything that is not sold, we have to have out of there by Monday afternoon at at 5 o'clock. The guy that's loaning us the the warehouse needs it for his business, but he's giving us like a three or four-day window. So he said, I was going to give you everything that's left over if you'll want it for your nonprofit. And I said, I'll take it. And I called Mafa and I said, you're not going to believe it. But I said, be at this address Monday morning at seven o'clock, have three or four of the strongest, eight or 10 of the strongest guys, however many you can get. And and I'll have some trucks there and we're going to load up some furniture and some clothes. I have no idea how much or what, 
make a long story short, at six o'clock Monday afternoon, Barb, we had furnished 53 apartments. Oh, my goodness. With beds, wow. couches, pots and pans, dishes, and enough clothes wow. for everybody to have 10, 12, 15 out. It was the most amazing thing you've ever seen in your life. Wow. So 53 families went from living on the with floor yeah. with nothing and in the same clothes for 30 days, 45 days to having a normal home. Wow. And so it, it, it started a chain of events. Uh, it took me too long to explain everything, but I started another nonprofit, uh, another 501c3 called the Kurdish Relief Association. We did some of the same things with the Kurds that we did with the ex-convicts. We had teachers from the Richardson School District come in with ESL classes after school, teaching these kids how to speak English. They'd never held mm -hmm. pencils. They didn't know how to hold a pencil. We taught the, the husbands job skills other than sheep herders. <laughs> uh, we got them a driver's license, everything you can do. A lot of them became cab drivers, uh, you know, driving trucks for whatever purpose. Uh, and we kind of turned the whole community around and, and got them on their feet here in America. Uh, and then about six months after all that kind of got going good, they came to me, they called me and said, can you come to our community center? We want to talk to you. So I did. They asked me to go to Iraq and start a school for their families who were left back in Iraq, who still were under the guise of Saddam Hussein, didn't understand democracy or freedom. All they'd ever known was a dictator. Yeah. Again, they'd never been allowed to go to school. And so we set up uh, a school in Dehuk, Iraq, a city of a million people that had no electricity, no utilities, no phone service, uh, no mail service, nothing. It was just a city of a million people that was dead because Saddam had decimated it when he had come through there uh, back in 1991. And so we started a school there in northern Iraq, and I went to the DISD, Dallas Independent School District. I got textbooks of, of history, American history, world history, English, math, uh, old school books that to, you know, the U.S. Was, were no longer good, but for you know, a group of people that right. had never been to school, they were pretty important. Uh, we got Bibles and we, we started a school there in northern Iraq. You got Bibles and, into Iraq. Yes. <laughs> Snuck them in. <laughs> Snuck them in. I, I flew from Dallas to Diyarbakir, Turkey, which is the southernmost airport in Turkey. Uh, I got a cab driver for $100 to drive me to the Iraqi border. And one of the Kurdish men who was going with me from Dallas uh as my interpreter, got us across the border and into the hook. And so we started this school. And over the next year, uh, we were able to get computers donated uh, from Dale Computer. Uh, we boxed those up. We took them. And that's when I got caught at the border uh, by the Turkish army. Uh, they saw us taking computers in, had heard about our work with the Kurds, who they don't like. Uh, they hate the Kurds, and they were, they're scared of them. Uh, and so they put me into a Turkish prison camp for 10 days. Um, the U S embassy finally got me out. They weren't happy with me because they, it was, it was not, you know, red cross or some civil you service. You were not an official humanitarian. I was not, I was yeah. not an official humanitarian. I was just a guy trying to do the right thing for. for so you get out of an people. American prison, you do good work and you wind up in a Turkish, <laughs> for a Turkish prison yeah. camp. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Uh, but yeah, again, so I mean, you can't make this stuff up. No, right? absolutely. Not. And uh, so you know, my life has just been one of of 
crazy wild fun. Uh, but I like <laughs> to think of it in a positive way. Everything I do is positive. Uh, 33 years of me, 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 me. And the last 34 years have been about all about you, 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 you. Uh, because if I can't give back, then I've really not done anything in my life. That is an extremely powerful moment. And you still feel that way, even though, all kidding aside, even though you spent time in a Turkish prison, Turkish yes. prison, you still feel that you you would do it again. Like giving oh, yeah. back is that you have received I have, more of I, I have no complaints because everything that happens in your life. Yeah. I wouldn't say it happens for a reason necessarily. I'm not going to get into all that. That's everybody has their own opinion of what that means. But whatever happens in your life, you can either you can either dwell on it and let it bring you down, or you can use it as an experience to take you to the next level. And that I've uh, I've just been brought up that you know what you you do you do the right thing. Even though I had that period of life for three years when I didn't do the right thing, and it cost me everything. Right. I literally lost everything. And so my relationship with my children now is better than it's ever been. I've got four beautiful grandkids uh, that I just, you know, and I live a mile and a half from them. I see them all the time. I mean, we're, we're very close. My children were very, very young when I went to prison, you know, uh, but our relationship is wonderful. Um, I've been able to give back over and over and my life has been so abundant. I can't even, I wouldn't want to change anything. Wow. Um, what I, I really wouldn't. Incredible story. I, I feel like so many things that you have said, we could dig right. There's at least five or six books in your story. I'm just <laughs> like, I'm a writer. I write books. I'm like, Oh my gosh, I could write. Well, I'm getting ready. To, like this. <laughs> I'm getting ready to write. Yeah. I'm getting ready to write another one. Good. Uh, I'm waiting. I'm waiting to hear back from some of the families of, of my, my, my month of May, uh, the pandemic thing has been very unique for me. Um, you know, we all went, we we're all going through it. We, yes. uh, but when it all started back in March, um, I'm retired, although I'm still working uh, in the running business because I love it so much. And it's a passion. Again, it's, it's not work to me. It's, right. it's, it's just life. Uh, but at first, you know, I, I was furloughed. I was staying at home, not doing anything, had time on my hands and, uh, got really, really fit. Uh, I was running two or three times a day, uh, 100, 125 miles a week, and uh, came up with this brilliant idea that uh, when, when, when the whole state of Texas shut down and we were told it was going to happen th through the end of May, right. I said, you know what, I'm going to use this time wisely. I'm going to be positive about it. I'm not going to sit here and cry and moan. And, you know, again, Barb, trying to get that positive angle, I said, you know what, Everybody's crying about staying at home. They can't go out and eat. They're, you know, they're stuck at home watching TV, playing on the internet, texting their friends, you know, staying, spending time with family. And I kind of took the opposite approach. And I said, you know what? 1986, I spent 14 months in a 10 by 10 cell with no TV, no internet, no phone, and no nothing. I lived... 14 months of my life preparing for the pandemic in 1986. Yes, no kidding. Because when March hit and I was assigned to my home or quarantined to my home, I was like, man, I got a nice house. I got a TV with cable. and Everything is relative, right? I got a laptop with internet and I got a phone. Yeah. I got a jogging trail that I can walk out of my door any, any time of the day, 24 hours and go run. I'm physically fit and healthy. 
how can life get better? And so I, I use it to my advantage near the end of April when I, again, when I knew the, the state of Texas is going to be shut down for the whole month of May, I said, you know what, I'm going to do something to raise money for the 31 heroes of extortion 17. And so I talked to my good friend, Morgan Luttrell, Marcus's uh, Luttrell's twin brother, who's on the board of directors of the boot campaign. And I said, Morgan, give me, give me something that I can raise money for boot campaign, Navy self financial. He says, Hey, I'm on the board of boot campaign. Won't you do it for, for that? So I set up a mission to run 31 miles a day for 31 days for the 31 heroes of Victorian 17. Each day was for one of those men. And I would wear the shirts that I have for Jogging for Frogmen in honor of Andrew Harvell, Aaron Vaughn, uh, Kevin Houston, John Tumbleson, Daniel Zerby, Jared Day, whoever, one mm -hmm. of those 31 guys. I feel like I know all these guys now because I've been doing this for so long, for, so for long. nine years. I feel like I, I should have met all 31 of them. But so each day I would get up and go run 31 miles in honor of that one guy. Wow. And post about it and send, you know, my condolences to his family. The next day I'd run for the next guy, the next day. And then on the 31st day, I ran the 31 miles in honor of JT. And we raised several thousand dollars for the boot campaign. Um, and, you know, it, it was just, it was the most exciting month of my life in some respects. Uh, because I got to look into each night before I was running for the, a certain man the next day, I would Google his name and, mm -hmm. and investigate his life and find out about his family and whether he had a wife or a girlfriend or children or, you know, something happened funny in his life or something, you know, that kind of drove him to become a SEAL or a Navy uh, officer or an Army officer or work in the Air Force, whatever their job was. And it was really an exciting time of my life. And so uh, I got I made connections with almost all those 31 families and now they're friends of mine. And so I, I'm going to write a book uh, about it, not necessarily for publication, but just for me and my experience right. of running 31 miles a day for 31 days. Wow. That is so great. So great. I love, <laughs> I love all of that. And thank you for sharing it. And thank you for being this inspiration and this impact and this force you are in so many ways. And I know there are so many more layers to your story that we literally have to sit here for hours to go into. And I would love to one day, by the way, because it's so interesting and well, so inspirational. And I just, I love that I got to meet you and, and talk to you and, and get to know you a little more. And before I let you go, first, we, I need to find out from you. I need you to share with our audience. If people want to connect with you, follow you, learn about these organizations that you support, get involved, contribute, any of that, where is a good mm -hmm. place? What is a good way for them to do that? Well, uh, on Instagram, <coughs> I'm Mike, Mike Rouse's, plural, Mike Rouse's Run Texas. Uh, Facebook, it's just Mike Rouse. Uh, on Twitter, I'm a running Rousey, R-O-U-S-E-Y. Um, I don't really have a, a web page or anything like that. Um, but uh, lastly, I would say if you if you follow Jogging for Frogmen, and it's J-O-G-G-I-N, no 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 final no G. G. Yeah. So www.joggifor.frogmen.com. That tells about the races that we do nationwide. If there's a race in your, your area, 
that you want to participate in or do virtually. Uh, again, we, we certainly appreciate it. Uh, I'm also on the board of uh, Got Your Back Network, uh, which is started and founded by one of my dearest friends, Andy Baldwin, and his dad, Roy Baldwin. Um, I, I do my birthday run every year. I run my age. I, I started that when I right after I got out of prison. Uh, when I was 34, I run whatever the year is, or the age is, I run that in miles. And so Andy started doing that when he was 35. Yes, he uh, as a <laughs> and fundraiser. I thought he was crazy, by the way. <laughs> yeah, I'll get, I'll get to do 68 miles in two months. So well, uh, It probably seemed like a really good idea one time. Yeah, <laughs> look, looking forward to it. Actually, next Friday, I'm going to run 24 hours again, and uh, you know, on, kind of on the anniversary uh, for Jogging for Frogman. Wow. Um, but, but Got Your Bat Network uh, is, is another organization I'm involved in. And, uh, I, I just encourage people to give back. Um, I, I, if I can leave you with one thing, it's kind of one of my favorite sayings, uh, is that never be afraid of failure because the only way you can fail or not the only way you cannot fail is if you don't try. So give it a shot. Whatever it is, if it's trying to raise ten thousand money, ten thousand dollars for an organization, and you only raise a thousand, so be it. You you raise a thousand dollars. I love it. Uh, I love it. Uh, you know, and and whatever your goal is, if it's if it's running and you want to run a marathon, and but you can't run that far, your body won't let you. You know what? Ninety nine percent of the world can't run five miles. So do what you can do. Don't be afraid of failure, because the only way you can fail is if you just don't try. I love it. And I'm glad you mentioned Got Your Back um, because Roy is a longtime friend and one of my biggest supporters for years since I got involved uh, with that organization. First as a gold star wife, you know, that's how I met his son, right. Andy, uh, on, on a plane to another event. There's just a hilarious story about that. And I was kind of, <laughs> kind of a jerk to him. Um, but then I wound up getting involved with this organization and I know what good people they are and what good work they do. And I love that you're that you're a part of it. And that's gotyourbacknetwork.org, I believe. Yeah, I was gonna say dot org, yeah. Yeah, gotyourbacknetwork.org. If people want to find out about that, they they do support uh, the families of fallen soldiers and they have come through and supported us. They offer scholarships to the children who are going to college and they really just do great work. And it's a uh, so cool for me personally to have met them first as a widow and then to become an honorary board member there and get to work with them as well yeah. too. I, I love all of that. So thank you for bringing them up. And um, sure. Yeah, when I was, it. when I was living in San Diego, we had a fundraiser every year called martinis and makeovers. Yes. That's what we did. I used to be so mad that they did it in San Diego. <laughs> here. I'm, like, I'm in New York, man. Like come. I hear you. And then they went to DC. Yeah. Yep. Well, yeah. I was the chairman of that for three years. Um, and that was one of the coolest things ever to see those ladies uh, get so appreciated and, focused on for that one day mm -hmm. uh, and then for one or two of them usually to share their experience, you know, of what losing that spouse had done to them, right. uh, how it had affected their lives. And, you know, it just made an impact on so many people. So I was, yeah. it was, I was honored to be allowed to be a chairman of that event for three years back in. Maybe they'll bring it back to New York or DC and we'll get, there you, out you, go. get you out on the East coast. All right. This last question that I have to ask, because we love, love to ask it. Um, really, that's why I have to ask because we love to ask it. But one of the reasons we started American snippets is because even just a few years ago, the divisiveness was really beginning to take root. And we understood a lot of that was just about people's mindsets and negativity. And we saw this attack begin on the notion of the American dream, how we are being told that 
it's dead, it's gone. We were being told to focus on the impossibilities rather than the possibilities. And we know that there are a lot of amazing people in this country. I've been impacted directly by many of them. We just talked about some, and now I meet you. And we know that the American dream is in fact alive and well. It's just that it looks different to every single person. And there is no one version of the American dream. It is a different idea, a different concept, a different uh, goal for everybody. So we like to ask, what does the American dream look like for you? What does it mean to you? Wow. Um, you know, I've never been asked that question. I've been, I've been asked a lot of questions uh, because of my background. But to me, uh, the American dream would probably be, uh, it's different from the Mike Rouse dream, but the American dream would be to achieve things that we thought were never possible. Um, and what I mean by that is um, I think some of us think that th that other guy, that other gal was born lucky and therefore they have a certain status in life that I can never achieve because I wasn't as fortunate. And yet we read stories, we hear stories every day about people who came over here from other countries and came with nothing but the clothes on their back and the money in their pocket. And yet they've achieved some level of success. And so I, I think the, the key for me is, to, is when you say achieve the American dream, it's to set your own personal dream and to achieve it. And if you can achieve your own personal dream, uh, you're going to be a success. Uh, my own personal dream is that when I do go, because I even though I think I'm going to live to be 168, <laughs> not just 68, I think I've got 100 more years in me. Uh, but, but my, my hope for myself, the Mike Rouse dream is that when I do finally go, people were able to look back and say, he lived a life well lived and he took, he took everything he had and gave back for it. Uh, I'm going to go out there and say that I think you've achieved that already, but you keep on achieving that for another hundred years, please, because we need more of you and we need you around for a long, long time. Well, thank you. And I am really honored to have been able to sit down and get to know your story, which is even more incredible when I dig into it than, than I had even recognized before. So really, thank you so much for just serving as an example to all of us and for doing the work you do and for taking the time to sit down and share that all with us today. Well, I'm honored and privileged that you even asked me. And, and now that I've been on and, uh, you know, the sincerity with which you have approached me and shared with me today has been very refreshing. And I, I'm, I'm honored and privileged to be on your show. All right, everyone, there you have it. That wraps up another episode of American Snippets. Thank you so much for tuning in. As always, I'd like to thank our guest, Mike Rouse, for being here as well and sharing his story. If you want to learn more about Mike, just head on over to americansnippets.com. We do a full featured article every single week on all of our guests. So head on over to americansnippets.com, check out the featured article of the week, re-listen to the podcast, watch the video interview, read the article. And we also include some social media links there as well that you can use to follow Mike Rouse on social uh, and learn more about him. Uh, again, we appreciate you being here today. If you got any value out of today's episode, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes, share this podcast with a friend, share it on social media. Uh, please tag us at American Snippets. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube at American Snippets. Uh, and that's about it. So again, we appreciate being here today. Now go out there and show the world how exceptional you truly are. <laughs>